Welcome to the ISA Science of Arboriculture podcast series. This is Dr. Tom Smiley at the Bartlett Tree Research Laboratory with this month's installment of the ISA podcast series. This series is brought to you by the Bartlett Tree Expert Company, caring for America's trees since 1907. This podcast series offers full-length educational talks by the world's top researchers, educators, and practitioners helping you to keep up to date with developments in the arboricultural industry. Today's talk is by Dr. Brian Scherenbrock, a soil scientist at the Morton Arboretum in Lyle, Illinois. He is the primary researcher focusing on the improvement of urban soils for landscape trees. This podcast features his talk on compaction and remediation of urban dirt. It was originally presented at the ISA International Conference in Parramatta, Australia in July 2011. So a couple uh, follow-ups from, from uh, Francesco's questions. I will be talking about compost teas and some uh, biological inoculant products. And um, the, the project I'll be talking to you today about is a tree fund project funded. So I'd like to acknowledge them and also thank them. Um, it's titled Compaction and Remediation of Urban Dirt. And being a soil scientist, I typically don't use that term dirt. But uh, we use a lot of acronyms in the laboratory. And to fit an acronym, CRUD, which we call this project, we needed to, to use the, the dirt term. Um, but it, it's, it's pretty descriptive of what we did to the site, as you'll see when I get into the methods. Um, what I plan on doing is following a typical research format. I'm going to give you an introduction, go through the methods, um, give you some results, and then draw some conclusions. Um, I should mention before I get started that this entire presentation is uh, available for download on our website, masslaboratory.org, so you don't, don't feel like you have to rush through and take notes. There's a, a few uh, changes from the abstract that's submitted in the, in the proceedings, so um, you'll note that as, as we go through. So. so a little introduction into the problem. Um, and, and I'll talk a lot about what goes on in the United States, but I think a lot of it will translate um, to the Southern Hemisphere and Australia here. But uh, in the United States, and particularly the Chicago region, the problem is that um, soil quality is severely degraded, and it's primarily degraded as a result of this great compact fill landscape disturbance scenario where the topsoil is removed, the subsoil is compacted, and then they put a nominal depth of uh, topsoil back on the site. And there's a, a, a full body of literature supporting that and showing that this disturbance is, has a severe impact on soil quality and a like uh, impact on urban tree health and growth. Uh, an additional problem you see in urban situations is you don't have that forest floor layer, so we remove the forest floor layer, which is that restitution avenue, that return of organic inputs, uh, primarily ab from above ground, to the soil, supplying the soil organic matter, the nutrients, and feeding the microorganisms. So that's a, another additional problem that we'll, we're kind of looking into with this, this research. Uh, the image here on your, is there a laser pointer on here? 
Yeah. This image right here is a, a typical forest soil in the United States. Um, it is a, um, it's a pretty sandy soil. It's um, what's termed as an ideal forest soil in Illinois, with, uh, Illinois USA. Um, you can see the, the E horizon here. I, I suspect a lot of your, your forest soils over in, uh, here in Australia have E horizons. Um, it has well, develop, well development. Um, it has uh, good aeration status, as you can see by the rusty color here. It uh, has a, a low pH. Um, it has a good supply of incoming organic matter from the top and also fine root turnover throughout the soil profile. In comparison, this is typically what we see in an urban situation in Chicago and a lot of other uh, urban environments where you get um, really alkaline soils on top. You have uh, inert soils, so there's a reduction in organic matter, specifically that incoming organic matter. You have a restricted root zone. In this case, it's this area up here that's restricted by this buried road at about 40 centimeters or so. Lots of anthropic materials or human, human uh, materials in this case. Again, the buried, uh, soil, buried road that we found in the soil profile. And then underneath that, there's a severe compaction layer and a restriction in uh, a, a high water table um, leading to reducing conditions or high, or high uh, water status conditions. Um, conceptually, if we want to look at what an ideal forest soil would be, it'd be about 50% solid material and about 5% um, of that solid material would be organic material. The remaining 50% by volume would be um, pore spaces and about 25% of that pore space would be filled with water. So that's the goal, that's what we'd like to see in, in a forest soil. In an urban soil, we have the compacted layer, and the, the compaction typically affects the macropores, so you compress those macropore spaces. So by volume, you have a lot more mineral component. And in the pore spaces that are, that are typically occupied in urban soil, you have a lot more water. And then you have that reduction in organic matter, and then you also have a lot of contaminants like polyacrylic hydrocarbons, uh, heavy metals, and things like that that you see as a result of industrial waste. <coughs> So soil organic matter is a, a really important tool. It's, it's, it's often used in soil remediation strategies in order to increase the organic matter content to improve soil quality. And it's, it's, although it's a small component of most soils, 5% or so, it's, it's a really important component. So I'll talk a bit about that. Um, it's so important that it's, it's quite often used as a direct or an indirect index of soil quality. These are some of the roles, and Francesco covered a number of these, that soil organic matter has in soil. It is important in chemical, physical, and biological properties in terms of nutrient retention or that cation exchange capacity and also nutrient supply, particular nitrogen, phosphorus, and sulfur. Um, it has a role in chelation and fixation, so it holds things. Um, in particular, it can hold uh, contaminants. It can also make things more available by, by holding them. Um, it has a, a strong role in acidification and pH buffering. It has a major role in bioaggregation, being the, the, the carbon supply through microorganisms who are creating those aggregates and creating the soil structure. Strong water holding capacity role. It has a bu climate buffering role and nutrient mineralization, biodiversity, and biological ripening. So it's, it's a very strong indicator of soil quality. And it's a very important soil property. This figure is from uh, a meta-analysis that we recently performed on studies published in urban forest, boriculture and urban forestry. And what we did is we took all the studies that looked at compost and mulch, those two primary. So when I say compost, I'm referring to the stuff that Francesco was talking about. So, and it, actually, compost by definition has some, some 
pretty strict standards. It, it has to go through a, a certain temperature for uh, three days or so. I think it's about 141 degrees Fahrenheit in the United States for three consecutive days. Not that all these studies specifically looked at compost that went through that process, but it, general terms in compost. And then the general term of mulch is, uh, and I'll be using this general term throughout the rest of the presentation, it's usually like a hardwood material that's chipped up, larger coarse material. It's not uh, as far decomposed. So when I say mulch, I'm referring to, to more coarse material. And I'll give you some specific chemical characteristics of the stuff that we used. Um, so back to this figure. So what we did was we looked at all the studies that looked at mulching compost. And we computed a, a relative response to control to a, you know, a, a null treatment. And we grouped those responses into different um, parameters, environmental parameters, physiolo tree physiological, and then root growth, and then some soil parameters. And what we found is across all these studies, we found generally positive impacts on all these different parameters for the compost and the mulch relative to control. So that's pretty strong evidence that you know, compost and mulch are having some, some positive improvements in urban, in urban soil quality and specifically in tree growth. But not all these organic materials are created equal, and actually a lot of the studies that we found in the, the, our literature search, they didn't really give a biochemical characterization of the stuff they used. So th there's a lot of materials that are being currently used for kind of organic amendments, organic uh, amelioration techniques, things that we do to kind of remediate soil. And these are some of the things that we're looking at currently in our laboratory from water all the way to just regular uh, inorganic fertilizers. And I've listed here the carbon content, the nitrogen content, the C to N ratio, and also the, the CO2 efflux, or the microbial respiration in these different products. And you can see when you, when you take a look at the data, there's quite a range, in particular, in the microbial respiration in these products. The CN ratio is, is particularly important. It's typically said that above 25 to 1 is when you start to see microbial mobilization. So it's a limitation to the microbial populations. They'll start to take nitrogen from the soil into their, their bodies, making it unavailable for plants. So what you often read in the literature is you want to use CN uh, materials with CN ratios of less than 25 to 1. So that'd be these materials down here. Now, the, the things that are, that are colored here, water, a hardwood mulch compost, a commercial biological product, aerated compost tea, and MPK fertilizer. Those are the specific products that I'm going to be talking about in the research. Um, the overall objective of the project was to mimic a typical site, urban site disturbance. So we, we mimicked the scrape compact fill disturbance. And then we evaluated six, and I'm, I'm using the term amendment kind of loosely here. These are materials that we put on top of the soil, but we did find that over, after four years, they were being mixed into the soil. So an amendment is typically something that is mixed into the soil. And these things over time, particularly the compost, was being incorporated into the soil. So it's a loose term on amendment, but these are six common things that are done to urban soils to kind of remediate the, the compaction effect of, of, a, of a scrape compact fill disturbance. Some of the hypotheses that we, t we test, and these are the major ones, we had a number of other ones we looked at. Um, we thought that larger, slower release nutrient sources, particularly the compost and the mulch, will have a greater positive impact on biological, chemical, and physical properties compared to our faster release um, liquid amendments that typically don't have as much of a nutrient load going into the, the soil. And then with comparing the compost and the mulch, the compost having a narrower C to N ratio, we, we thought that it would have a greater improvement on soil fertility, soil biological uh, 
bi biomass and activity compared to mulch. And then we also wanted to take a look at some uh, relationships between the soil properties we're gonna, we measured and the tree parameters we measured. And we wanted to start looking in, in some of these uh, predictive relationships. And we, we thought since soil organic matter is often re uh, recommended as a major index of soil quality, we thought it would, should have the strongest correlations with the tree parameters that we measured. So getting into the methods. Um, I'll present each method that we did and give a couple pictures of it and give a quick description. That's mostly so you can go back through and look at it, and if you want to be, learn a little bit more about the method, it's available for you. Um, the, the research was performed. Well, that's really washed out, so I apologize for that. Um, the, the research was performed in the Morton Arboretum in Lyle, Illinois, so in northern hemisphere, and we're located right here on the southern tip of uh, Lake Michigan there. Uh, some background information about the Morton Arboretum. It was established in 1922 um, by the Morton uh, Salt family. It's about 700 total hectares, and we have collections, woodlands, prairies, meadows. Um, there's the latitude and longitude. Um, our climate, we get about temperatures range from about negative 6 Celsius to 22 in uh, summer, and we get about 800 to 1,000 millimeters of precipitation. This is the, the overall site map, or the, the, what, what we created after we did our scrape compact fill disturbance. You can see the different treatments here listed below. Um, we looked at two species. I'll talk a little bit more about what those species were. And then you notice across the plot, we have these little blocks. So there's often spatial variability across um, soil, so we wanted to make sure that we were taking that into account. So all the analysis we, we performed also had a blocking factor by space. And within each one of these blocks, um, we had an individual um, species, we had a full complement of our species and treatments. So to the site disturbance, this was started in, in uh, April 2007. And like I mentioned, we, we mimicked a typical scrape compact fill dis uh, type disturbance where we scraped off all the topsoil. And it's about, um, about a half a hectare total in size. Um, and then we compacted the soil uh, quite heavily. We performed all this activity when the soils were basically at field capacity. And then we did some characterization to see how effective our disturbance was. Um, after we, we, uh, we did our, our disturbance, we planted the trees. And we planted them on that, according to that map that I, I showed you previously. We used a tree spade, about a half a meter tree spade. And um, we planted the, the 100 trees, 120 trees. Uh, the two species we tested, the first was Acer rubrum, or red maple. It's a deciduous species. It uh, grows up to about 15 meters. It's adaptable to dry and wet sites. It does exhibit chlorosis with uh, some compaction and high pH. It's endomycorrhizal. Um, the, the plants that we used were two-year-old whips, two to three centimeters diameter, and we pruned them at planting all to a meter and a half. And there's the, the range here in the United States, uh, in the United States of the plant. Uh, the second species was river birch, again a deciduous species, this time it's uh, ectomycorrhizal. Um, it also prefers wet sites and it was also pruned at, at planting. So I mentioned that we did some characterizations of the disturbance just to see how effective we were in, um, in, in particularly in compacting. And we did this two times, um, we did this right after the disturbance in June 2007 and then again in uh, September 2010. And what we did was we dug a trench and we did some soil profile characterizations in the disturbed area and undisturbed area. This is a soil profile of the, the disturbed soil. And 
it was classified, we classified it to um, an Ozaki series, which um, I'm not sure how familiar you guys are with U.S. soil taxonomy, but it's an alpha sol, and it's, uh, it's, it's an alpha sol with a, a silt loam cap, so there's, there's a lust cap on our soils, and it's overlying glacial till. And we usually have a pretty high base, um, base cation concentration in our soils in Illinois, and they're, they're typically moderately well-drained, um, slowly permeable, pretty deep, and there's quite uh, dense glacial till down here at the bottom. Right here you can see this is the major effect of the compaction layer, uh, of the compaction disturbance, and I'll zoom in on that area. And what we did is we basically created a, a pretty substantial hard pan at about 15 centimeters or so from the compaction, and this was actually a picture from the from the, the, a control plot in the 2010 uh, profile characterization. So this was three years following the disturbance, and this is the, the bulk density of that, that layer. Um, originally it was a 1.19 and it increased to 1.65, so about 40% increase in bulk density. So we, we're pretty uh, successful in compacting the soil. Um, this layer up here, overlying that, was also uh, experienced an increase in, in compaction, but it also, it, it also created an, um, a platy structure. So the, in the previous picture, you can kind of see it up here. Right here, it had real strong platy structure from the compaction. That was the, the overlying topsoil that we placed on site and also compacted. <clears throat> so those are the changes in the bulk density. Um, so that was two areas uh, on the plot, but we also wanted to get an idea of how effective we were across the plot. So we couldn't dig pits everywhere, so we use a soil penetrometer. And what this device does is measures resistance as you push it down through the soil profile at different um, depths. So these are the soil penetration resistance um, at, as you move down the soil profile in centimeters. Here's the, the resistance, megapascals. Typically, um, right about here, 2.3 is where you start to see root uh, inhibit inhibitation from growth, um, and that's published from uh, Susan Day's um, recent uh, literature review. So the, the undisturbed area, we did uh, 20 different locations, um, across, not, on the, on the, not on the plot, and we also looked at 20 locations within the plot. And you can see we were pretty effective at compacting the layer, and just like the, the soil profile that I showed you in the image, the, the major compaction range was about 15 centimeters or so. That's where we had our highest uh, compaction. So we were pretty effective, I think, at, at compacting the soil. So now we wanted to try and fix the soil. So we applied treatments. We started doing this in uh, May of 2008. We planted the trees. We allowed them to establish for one year. And we, we've been applying treatments uh, since then. The treatments included a compost. So the compost we use, we purchased it from Midwest Organics. Uh, this compost tests um, very high-quality compost. We had a test by Soil Food Web and also our laboratory, and I'll give you some of the, the, the biochemical characterization of the compost itself. But relatively speaking, it's a, it's a very good compost in terms of uh, fungal growth and, and bacterial growth. There's the density of the compost. We applied it in May of each year, and we applied it to a 2.5 centimeter depth as a top dressing. So this is what it looks like, and about a month later, you could barely tell that it was in there. So it, it incorporates into the, and this was applied over the turf, um, and it incorporates into the soil relatively quickly. Second treatment was a mulch. So this was a, a, a chipped-up mixed hardwood mulch. So all the prunings that we do at the Arboretum, mostly the all the hardwood prunings, are chipped up, double-ground, and we use, we've been using that as a treatment. 
um, the average chip size, 2 centimeters by 0.5 centimeters. There's the density, and this was applied to 15 centimeter depth each year. So each year we went out and reapplied to that 15 centimeter depth. Uh, the fertilizer we used, it's um, uh, 30, here's the 30, 10, 7 um, fertilizer. We applied according to ANSI standards at 1.95 kilograms per 100 square meters. Um, we applied it in May and September, and then we also applied water only on the months that we were applying other treatments, the other liquid treatments, the compost tea and the biological product, which I'll get into. The commercial biological product, which I'll abbreviate as CBP for the rest of the presentation, we use uh, Plant Healthcare Complete Plus. Um, we applied it per the label. Here's what the label says is in there, a number of bacterial species, um, so trichoderma, and then a, a bunch of organic products. We also tested uh, aerated compost tea. Um, so aerated compost tea, for those that aren't familiar, I'll give a quick introduction to this. So what you do is you, you take compost and you suspend it in a mesh bag and then you actively aerate it. So we have a large brewer that, that we brew this in and the idea is to kick off the organisms into the, the liquid and then take the liquid and apply that to the soil. And then as well as during the brew, you add a number of ingredients to try to um, increase the desirable microorganisms in our case because we have trees, we want to increase the fungus relative to bacterial populations. So there's the rates that we apply to that, 2.45 kiloliters per thousand per 100 square meters, and this rate, there, there's not really a standard rate in the literature, so how we developed this rate was talking to the people that are currently applying compost teas, and we picked an average rate. Um, the, the teas were immediately applied after brewing, and we tried to avoid uh, periods of full sun, the idea being that if you put the organisms out on, uh, during periods of full sun on leaves, they sit in little droplets, they can get cooked in little greenhouses, so we wanted them to get into the, the soil as soon as possible and without any uh, harm. The compost tea was brewed in this brewer here, the GOT um, 250. It's a 946-liter compost tea brewer. So here's the, the um, right here, this, this little stem right here is the aerator. So there's a bag that hangs here in the compost, and it, it, it's very active um, in terms of the aeration. It was brewed for 24 hours, and then we applied these products to the compost um, tea itself in order to increase the fungal populations. And these products, again, were selected by the people that had been using it in practice. So we had to use our best judgment on a number of this. Um, during the brew, we, made a number, we, we did a number of measurements. We looked at dissolved oxygen, pH, conductivity, and temperature. Dissolved oxygen is the really important parameter here. And what's said is that once you get below about six part per million, that's when your tea starts to go anaerobic. So all of our we ensured that all of our teas were above six part per million. And we didn't have to do any, um, how you typically do this is, is you do some uh, ingredient modification. Um, we didn't have to do any of that. If, if you start to get a lot of respiration, you, you lose a lot of oxygen, you want to back off on the, the stuff that can quickly metabolized by bacterial populations. But our brewer, we stayed above six part per million the whole time. Um, this actually is a, an extended brew that we took out to 50 hours, but like I mentioned, we collected all of our teas at 24 hours and immediately applied. And then our last was our, our water control, and we used water as a control because a lot of our treatments were liquid treatments. Um, and then when we were applying our liquid treatments, we also applied water to our compost and our mulch treatments. So all of the, the treatments received water 
monthly. And they received that at 2.45 kilo, kiloliters per year. Here's some of the, the chemical characterization work we did on each of the treatments. And you can see that just looking at the, the pH, um, pH of the compost tended to be quite high compared to the mulch. Um, the, the different uh, nutrients, and I'll, I'll give this in another form later. When, this is just a percentage of the nutrients within that um, treatment itself. What you have to do is you have to take that percentage and apply it out to the actual amount you put material put on there. And I'll give another table where we did that. Um, but this, this stuff, we're using this for interpretation of our results, and I'll, I'll come back to it again as I go through our results. We also did a, a, a bunch of microbial parameters. Um, we sent some samples out to the soil food web, and we did a lot of direct uh, microscopy work in our lab. And here's the numbers. And uh, our, our compost teas tested pretty well. Um, they give you standards. Um, it's good, fair, things like that. Um, our, our teas tested reasonably well. They, they were at no time were they really anaerobic, and they had good amounts of fungus organisms. So they should have been suited. They, they were suited well for, for trees. Um, so here's that, um, taking that percentage, multiplying out by the actual material that's being delivered to the plot. So this is what's kind of more important in, in my mind. This, and we look at um, the amount of carbon that's being delivered in these different treatments. You can see that mulch, and I gave a relative rank actually of, of all these things. And for all these parameters, mulch, compost, fertilizer, compost tea, the product, and then the water control, that's kind of the sequence in, in the, the nutrients and the organisms that we're applying in the different treatments. So um, we, we did a number of, uh, call them in-situ monitoring things, things that we measured on plot, and I'll go through those right now. We looked at surface respiration from the, from the, the surface itself, so we measured CO2 efflux using a sodium hydroxide trap method. Um, we, at that time of those measurements, we measured soil temperature. We measured potential soil water leachate, so we collected, um, actually I have a slide for each one of these. Sorry about that. So soil water content we measured with TDR probes, so time domain reflectometry. Um, there's a picture of it right here, and it measures a, a signal, a current across these probes. The more moisture you have, the faster that current goes, and we measured it a number of times throughout the uh, three seasons. Here's the specific dates that we measured that. Um, I mentioned that we measured soil water leachates, so we installed these porous cup samplers to uh, 20 centimeters in depth, and the idea is that you capture this water, and this is the excess water that's not being taken up by the plants, and so it's the water that is potentially uh, available to leach to the groundwater, and then we took those and we measured uh, anions using ion chromatography in our laboratory. We measured soil water tension, so soil water content and tension together give you plant available water. Soil water tension is kind of uh, how tightly the water is held within the soil surface, and we measured that with uh, soil tensiometers. So this, this, this uh, porous cup sampler gets installed into the soil, and then this is a little instrument that we put on top, and it measures the, the strength of the water being held to the soil. And those are the dates that we measured it. And then I mentioned we measured uh, respiration or surface carbon efflux from the surface using a sodium hydroxide trap method. Um, pretty simple method. We, these, these are permanent um, collars that are installed out there. We put this little modification on top of that. There's a little vial with sodium hydroxide. It hangs down here. 
It sits out there for 24 hours. After 24 hours, we take that to the laboratory and we titrate it with hydrochloric acid to an, a phenolphthalein endpoint and we measure the amount of unreacted sodium hydroxide, which correlates to CO2 respiration. Um, we looked at soil density, so soil bulk density and penetration resistance. We measured bulk density um, using the undisturbed cores, 7.24 to 7.1. We use uh, penetration resistance. We use the soil penetrometer. Uh, build field scout spectrum technologies is the manufacturer of the instrument we used. We collected soil samples um, using oak field composite cores and the core sizes were 2.5 centimeters. We collected from the 0 to 15 centimeter depth. Each plot we collected uh, four cores per plot and we collected that twice a year for four consecutive years. When then we brought those uh, samples to the laboratory. We did uh, color and texture characterization using Munsell um, color charts. We did texture using the hydrometer method, gravimetric soil moisture, just uh, weight loss, uh, oven drying, pH and conductivity with a meter. We measured uh, the bases, cal calcium, magnesium, potassium, and sodium, um, extracting with ammonium acetate and then atomic absorption spectrometry. Phosphorus, we used a Bray P1 extraction. Our soils were uh, more acidic, so that's the, the preferred method rather than the Olsen extraction, and it's a colorimetric method we used for that. We measured total nitrogen, carbon, and total organic matter content using automated dry combustion, and again, loss on ignition. Loss on ignition is a more practical method. It's a little cost effective. The preferred method is automated dry combustion. Um, we measured different nitrogen species, nitrate, ammonia, dissolved organic nitrogen. We did this just standard extractions and, and uh, standard soil science methods. We looked at particular organic matter, and I'll talk a little bit more about this one. Particular organic matter is the stuff that's relatively labile. It's, it's the immediate substrate for microorganisms. There's a lot of literature that suggests that this is uh, strongly correlated with nitrogen availability. And we did a pretty simple method on this. We take the samples and we separate it using um, sieves and we capture stuff that's sand associated and we burn it in a muffle furnace. All the organic matter is burned off and that, that gives us um, what we call the, the particular organic matter fraction. We also measured water stable aggregates. So we isolated the one to two millimeter size aggregates and we submerged them in water using this little contraption that one of our volunteers built and it oscillates up and down. The soil sample sits right here in a, a water, in a, a, a pool of water. And the more stable those aggregates are as they oscillate up and down, the better soil quality. So this palm measurement and water stable aggregates are two um, measurements that are often suggested in soil quality assessments. So we, we, we did those. We looked at total microbial biomass using a fumigation and extraction method. Looked at carbon and nitrogen mineralization. So we measured the amount of nitrogen that was um, evolved over a standard period of time at optimal microbial conditions, 25 degrees Celsius and 60% water-filled pore spaces, and also the carbon respiration over that period. And then we, we're starting to do some of the microbial assessments. Um, the only results I'll have to, to, to present today is uh, community-level physiological profiling um, using bilog eco plates. So what you do is you take a soil extract and you apply a little bit in each one of these little wells. And these wells, this is what's in the carbon sources in each one of those wells. It's replicated three times on this plate. And the higher that, that purple color, or the darker that purple color is, the more that the microorganisms, in this case, the bacteria, the different types of bacteria, are using that carbon substrate. 
So it's a good way at looking at different types of bacteria and what carbon substrates they're using. So it's, it's a coarse uh, index of bacterial um, diversity. And it's actually used quite often in the literature. It's, it's nice because it's relatively cheap compared to a PCR technique. So we're using this as our, getting our initial assessments on microbial diversity. Then some of the tree measurements. We measured tree height annually, computed a relative change per tree. We measured branch growth on free branches per tree and, and computed the twig extension. Um, we're, we're, right now we're halfway through this, so we destructively sampled 60 of the trees. Um, before we did that, we measured um, diameter every year. And what we're going to be doing now is um, looking at the increment rings on these um, trees that we, we, we ripped out of the grounds and cut up. While they were in the ground, we measured leaf freedness with a SPAD meter. This was measured on a bunch of dates. There's the dates listed. And the SPAD meter is the same SPAD meter that Francesco was alluding to. Um, gives an index of green and has that, that, that chart that he put up is a strongly correlated with uh, photosynthesis. So it's a cheap and quick method. We looked at um, leaf carbon and nitrogen content. So we collected leaves periodically and we used the automated dry combustion uh, analyzer in our lab and measured leaf, and carbon, leaf carbon and nitrogen. And I mentioned this, we're in the process of shoot and root biomass. So we're, we're pulling up the trees, we're getting the soil off with an air spade, um, removing the turf roots. Then we're cutting them at the, uh, two inches above the, the first root. And we're drying them out. And then we're going to be cutting off all the fine roots. We're getting weights of the, the coarse roots. And then Gary's uh, root laboratory is going to be looking at fine root structures and developments. Um, right now, I'm presenting uh, the total biomass from the, the above ground portion and the below ground portion. So that's the only data we have right now for this measurement. Um, some of the stats, this was a randomized complete block design, 120 total plots. I mentioned that we had location blocks, we had to block by tree species, we blocked by sampling dates, um, we checked for normality with standard tests. Uh, so I mentioned a whole bunch of measurements. Because we had so much measurements, you have a multiple testing problem. Um, if you measure 100 measurements, by just by randomness, five of those, you're going to get some significant effects. So we had to apply a Bonferroni inequality to adjust our critical p-values. So the, all the stuff that I'm presenting, if it says it's significant, that's significant after we've applied this Bonferroni inequality. And the, I listed the, the critical p-values. Uh, main effects, we used two keys, ANOVAs, mean separations, all that stuff. Pairwise correlations. Um, use uh, jump software and all the, the statistical differences are at the 90% probability level. So results and discussion. Starting with uh, soil physical properties. This figure shows, and uh, all the figures are going to be color coded, so the water will be uh, blue, purple, red, orange, uh, yellow, and green. Um, and this figure shows volumetric water content, so this was measured with the TDR probes. Um, here's the dates on the bottom. Right here, I've listed um, treatment date and treatment by date interactions. If I don't include something like a species or a species by date by treatment interaction, it wasn't significant. I just want to get too cluttered here. Um, so right here, there was significant date, date effects, but there was no date by treatment interaction. Um, basically, what this tells us, it's, it's kind of what we suspected. With the mulch or that, that hardwood mulch, you have greater volumetric water content throughout the year at every sample point compared to other treatments with no significant differences with our other treatments, including the compost. Then if we look at the other component of plant available water, soil tension, how tightly the water is held, the same story. 
So water's held very loosely with um, mulch compared to our other things. Um, same thing, treatment, treatment strong impact. Um, to kind of quantify those values, field capacity is at thir 33 kilopascals. Permanent wilting point is at negative 15 kilopascals. So we were between um, field capacity and permanent wilting point on all of our, all of our treatments, actually. Soil bulk density. Um, so this was measured at the, the zero to seven centimeter la layer. Um, it was measured once, and I included the end value. So each bar on each figure, um, it tells you how many samples are made up in that bar. And then for those that aren't familiar, when there's a, a unique letter above one of these bars, that means that's significantly different from uh, a like bar without, without that, that letter. So these, these two treatments are significantly different. This one compared to this one is not significant because they both have A's. So what we saw was a significant decrease in mulch compared to our, our water or our, our null treatment and um, really not, not much else going on there with bulk density. And then what I've also included in a lot of these figures is a restriction range or some range where you start to see a limitation in tree growth. In this case, in our soils, you start to see redu reductions in, in root growth from the literature uh, about 1.5 um, grams per cubic centimeter. This is the, the penetration resistance profile, and this was on one specific date um, later in the, in, the, in the experiment, October uh, 3rd, 2010. And you start to see a significant difference with our mulch compared to our treatments when you hit about 10 centimeters or so. And I don't think this is uh, a fact, uh, an artifact of um, a reduction in, in soil strength or a uh, reduction in bulk density. I think it's more of a moisture change because as you're pushing this profile, this penetrometer, it's really susceptible to changes in moisture and also texture. Our mulch soils were, were very wet compared to our other treatments and it was very easy to push it through. So I, I don't think it, it has anything to do with really the bulk density changing at those layers from the mulch. It's really rather a change in soil moisture content. And what I'll do is I'll summarize all these, these parameters and properties when I get, get through in summary and conclusions in some tables. Soil chemical properties, this is a, a figure of soil pH, and it's a mean of all of our sample dates, so each bar is made up of 120 measurements. We did not see um, a significant treatment by data interaction, so then I can combine the, the data. Um, here's the, the limitation range here. If we started to get about 7.5, that's when you start to see deficiencies in some of the micronutrients. Um, what we found was a significantly greater soil pH in our compost compared to our mulch. And this is likely a result of just the, the compost having a, a greater pH. Uh, the compost of pH was 7.7 .7 compared to the mulch of 5.6. So you're incorporating those materials naturally, it's gonna, it's gonna reduce the, the, the soil pH or impact the soil pH. <coughs> this is soil potassium. And here we had significant um, treatment by date interactions, so I had to, to put these by year. So here's a 2008 means, here's 2009, here's 2010. Again, the treatments, and then the significant, um, the significant values right here uh, for each one of those sample dates with uh, two key differences listed there. So what we started to see towards the end of experiment, and particularly in our 2010 sam sample date, you started to see compost with a significant increase in potassium relative to our other treatments, followed by mulch and then the, then the other guys. 
And that's consistent with the literature. There's a lot of potassium in the mulch. It's also consistent with what we found when we measured the compost in the mulch. Here's the, the grams of uh, potassium input in each one of those treatments. Mulch, it's 401 grams per year of just potassium. Um, and then here's 264 for compost compared to 14 for fertilizer and less than one for those other treatments. So we're adding a lot more potassium. You're going to see a lot more potassium in the soil. Um, same sort of story with, with phosphorus, nothing too different there. Here's the, it's kind of hard to say whether or not that's the limiting range for, for soil phosphorus because it's really tied to pH, um, but that's some of the literature that's out there. Um, same thing, with compost and with mulch, we're seeing increases in soil phosphorus. This is total soil nitrogen, and we didn't see anything in the first two sample years, but then Again, with just like uh, phosphorus and potassium, we started to see big increases in our third year and significant increase in total soil nitrogen with compost compared to other treatments in the third year. And again, we have a lot more nitrogen coming in our compost and our mulch, so it's, it's going to, into the soil. This is uh, soil water leachate measured from the porous cup samplers. So this is, this is excess nit nitrate that is not being taken up by the plants and is not, uh, and it's, it could be leached out of the soil. So it's kind of um, an index of what would potentially be leached. And the, the value here of 10 ppm is what's suggested by the, the Environmental Protection Agency as a, uh, a threshold for uh, high nitrate contamination. So you can see that on our fertilizer plots in year three, we had quite a bit uh, of nitrate in uh, excess nitrate in the soil soil water leachates, and it's I mean it's it's really a result it probably a result of uh, the different forms of nitrogen that's being applied. These these treatments, the mulch and the compost, those are primarily dissolved organic nitrogen forms, um, whereas the fertilizer it's 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 more of an available form of nitrate. It's it's being uh, leached out of the soil quicker. Total soil carbon, same thing. We started to see increases, particularly with our compost and our mulch when we get to our third year. Same thing, we're adding a lot more carbon and nitrogen. So nothing too surprising, I don't think, with, with the macronutrients so far. And then the CN ratio, our, car our carbon to nitrogen ratio of our starting materials, um, mulch was 38 to one, compost 15 to one. So we saw with, with mulch, we're starting to see an increase in the C to N ratio. With compost and other treatments, well, we're, mostly with mulch, we're starting to see an increase in the CDN ratio. So soil biological properties, this is potential nitrogen mineralization, the increase in nitrate and ammonia over a standard period of time. We didn't see too great a change, and here there was no uh, treatment by data interaction, so I didn't split it up to each year. These are means across all three years. And you can see that mulch and fertilizer, there's greater potential nitrogen mineralization compared to our, our water control. Uh, soil particular organic matter, so this is the stuff that's immediately being used by the microorganisms. It's the most labile organic matter pools, and it's, it's really, sh it, it follows what you see in the, the carbon, the nitrogen, the phosphorus, potassium, that stuff's the stuff being used by the microorganisms that's being that uh, those nutrients are being released from. So it makes sense that this particular organic matter pool would also increase in a similar fashion, and it is. And then water-stable aggregates. We had greater water-stable aggregates in our compost relative to our other treatments. Um, in this case, we also see, started to see greater 
uh, water-stable agates in the commercial biological product. And this is just, it's, it's a rough threshold. People say that you want to have at least 50% uh, water-stable aggregates in, in the soils that we're, we were looking at. Total microbial biomass nitrogen, so this is nitrogen within the, the microbial biomass, all of the microbial biomass. Um, this was kind of surprising. We saw a relative decrease in microbial biomass in our mulch compared to our other plots. And these two figures, so this is the, the bacterial diversity uh, of the microbial biomass and the bacterial abundance. So these are the biolog eco plates. Similar story, we started to see lower bacterial diversity, lower bacterial abundance in our mulch compared to our other plots. And, and what I think is what is going on here is we're seeing a shift from bacteria to, to fungus organisms. And I don't right now have the data con to confirm that. We're currently running the fungus plates. So if we see an increase in fungus in our mulch, I think that kind of explains the, the change in total microbial biomass because bacteria are typically quite more abundant than, than fungus, so you'd have a lot more, you'd expect uh, a decrease in total microbial biomass if you get an increase in fungus populations. So if that's the case, which I, I don't know if it is or not, but that's what I suspect is going on. And then this is a, a principal component analysis using the biolog eagle plates, and it just confirms what we saw on, on the last slide. Um, what it does is it ordinates all of those different carbon substrates and really what it's showing is that a commercial biological product, there's a different bacterial population compared to all of our other treatments. So, and it, that kind of makes sense because we're adding a whole bunch of different, different uh, bacteria that probably weren't native to that soil or maybe not, are not in that soil with a commercial biological product. The other treatments, like the compost teas and stuff, we're making from local um, compost sources, so we might be bringing some different organisms in. So there's, there's further work that's going to be done here. We're going to run some PCRs. We're going to take a look at um, what these organisms are and you know, what's, what's going on there. Um, the, the majority of the organisms that we see in this commercial biological product are using carbohydrates and carboxylic acids, though. So other soil properties that we did not see effects on include soil texture, didn't really expect to see a lot of change in texture, color, temperature, we didn't see any change in temperature, so that was kind of surprising because you do have a buffering effect um, with the mulch, what's reported in the literature, but we did not see that. Um, didn't see any change in the conductivity, our, our base cations, uh, ammonia, we didn't see any changes in surface carbon efflux or the respiration from the soil surface or uh, potential respiration within the, the laboratory. And then what's not listed here, we also looked at hydrophobicity. There was a question um, in Francesco's talk about hydrophobicity with these different organic matter treatments. We didn't see any effects on hydrophobicity, and we didn't expect it because these soils are, are kind of fine. Typically, you'll start to see hydrophobic layers in sandier soils where the organic uh, particles will coat the, the, so the coarse grains. We didn't see anything going on here in, in the, the silt loam topsoils that we have with these organic amendments. So going on to our tree properties, um, this is by species here, and this is the, the leaf chlorophyll or the spad meter. Here's Acer rubrum or the maple, and here's the birch on this side. And there was a significant species by uh, treatment interaction, so I broke it apart. Um, but similar story as the soil properties. It, it seems that we're improving soil quality with, the, with these spe two specific treatments, and we're seeing a like reflection in tree growth properties where we're seeing greatest improvements with our compost and our fertilizer, and a compost fertilizer and mulch compared to our other treatments. 
And then if we look at the relative change in diameter per, per individual tree um, over from 2010, from, two, from 2010 to 2007, we have on this side, I'm sorry, uh, the solid bar right here is the, the maple, and this is the birch right here. And uh, each bar is represented by, by 10 individual trees. Same thing. We have uh, greatest change in diameter with compost, mulch, fertilizer, and then other treatments are following. Branch extension, same story. And then this is the data. I actually just got this emailed to me since I've been here in Sydney, so I haven't had a chance to statistically analyze it. But I think it's, I, I suspect that these results are going to be significant and um, you're going to have greater um, Right here is the shoot biomass. This is the total root biomass, just the coarse roots. And I think that you're going to have greater total biomass in our, our mulch compost followed by our other treatments. And this is the data for the river birch, which again is not, has not been analyzed. So other tree properties which we did not see a response in include tree height. So primary growth, we didn't see any change, and that's actually consistent with the literature. Most of these, most of uh, changes, improvements in soil properties are often reflected in secondary growth diameter rather than primary growth. Uh, leaf nitrogen, we did not see any change in leaf nitrogen, although that's only one sampling. We're going to do another sampling on leaf nitrogen. I suspect that we might see a, a change in total leaf nitrogen. This first one was from a, a 2008 sampling um, because we are seeing a change in leaf freedness, and it usually correlates strongly with total leaf nitrogen. Tree and soil relationships, we looked at um, the relationships of different tree parameters with soil properties. And what we found is right here I've got the, the properties that most strongly correlate with um, the tree parameter that had the strongest correlation for soil properties, which is relative diameter growth. And these are the individual properties that had strong correlations with that. And what we see is that, so, well, you don't really, it's not too strong, but there might be a, str a stronger correlation with soil moisture for the, the maple and uh, relative diameter growth compared to uh, fertility effect where you have the birch. So when we see improvements in soil fertility, we tend to see a little bit more improvement in birch growth. Um, when you change soil physical properties, in particular soil moisture, we had stronger correlations with the maple. But it, it's pretty loose. It's comparing the R squared here of 0.4757 compared to that. And then looking down here in like something like total soil organic matter, these R-square values are higher for a birch compared to our maple. Um, so summary and conclusions. Uh, here's a table, and these, these next set of tables will all follow the same fashion where I have arrows pointing for the, the, the treatment that had the strongest um, response. If it's pointing down, that means there's a decrease. If it's pointing up, that means there's an increase. So... In terms of soil physical properties, our mulch had the strongest effect on soil physical properties. Um, it improved water status, included, improved soil uh, moisture. Although we didn't, our soil moisture contents were not in a limiting range and soil moisture content, uh, tensions were not in a li uh, limiting range for any of the, the treatments. Density was in a limiting range and we did see decreases in bulk density with, um, with the mulch. Soil chemical properties or general fertility was, was mostly increased, most strongly increased with the compost followed by the mulch and then the fertilizer. And uh, we did see some increases in pH with compost, so this is something to keep an eye on. 
Um, and this can kind of be monitored by, the, by looking at the pH of your compost. I think if, you, if you're selecting P, uh, compost with a lower pH, you, 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 can, you can monitor that because it, it's, it was pretty strongly, um, the, the, the starting materials really had a strong impact on what's going on in the soil. We did see this excess nitrate that was observed with the fertilizer, so this is something also to, to note. Um, there was a lot more of that that could potentially hit, be hitting the, the water table or be lost to uh, denitrification and because you're applying a lot of inorganic fertilizers, an in, inorganic uh, form of fertilizer. And because we didn't, the, the P and K are not typically in the ranges across any of the treatments that you'd start to see limitations in the literature. Um, we suspect that maybe that these treatments are mostly impacting their carbon nitrogen content, and that's really what's going on rather than a phosphorus and potassium, but we, we don't really know for sure. Soil biological properties, uh, POM and wet aggregate stability both increase with the compost, and that's, that's those are, as I mentioned, these are very uh, strong indexes of soil quality, so that's, that's um, pretty good evidence that soil quality is being increased by the compost application. Nitrogen mineralization was increased with the mulching of fertilizer, and then we had this thing going on with the bacterial biomass and diversity decreasing with mulch. So further work will be looking at the fungal populations and see how they responded with the mulch. Tree properties, tree growth and biomass were greater with the mulch fertilizer, uh, mulch compost, and then the fertilizer. The responses, as mentioned, were primarily in secondary growth. We didn't see anything in tree height. We saw changes in relative diameter growth, twig growth total shoot biomass. We're going to be looking at the fine root growth. We're going to be looking a little bit further at the, the leaf nitrogen. And then I mentioned it, it, it may be, we're, we're doing more work on this. Um, there may be a stronger relationship for the maple in terms of improvements in soil tilth or physical properties. And the betula might be more improved by in changes in soil fertility. So uh, an economic comparison of these different treatments. This is the approximate labor that we use to apply these different treatments. The cost of the sprayer, so the sprayer was used for the fertilizer, the ACT, and the commercial biological product. The compost tea brewer, that's the, the cost there. Um, different consumables that we use for each of these treatments. Uh, other costs like hoses, wheelbarrows, and you know, uh, shovels and things like that, giving the total cost. And then what I did is kind of quantified that or, or divided that by the total amount gained in tree biomass. And you can see the dollar values. So it's, I think it's, it, it shows that uh, you, get a, you get more bang for your buck with the mulch and the compost compared to other treatments. The aerated compost tea actually turned out to be quite ex expensive. Over time, that initial investment in capital that would, that would be uh, dampened out, but this is a four-year study, and we did have to put that initial $2,500 in to buy the brewer. This is just a, a visual picture of kind of what, what we, we saw. Um, you know, we saw a lot of improvements in tree, tree growth, a lot of improvements in soil quality with our compost, with our mulch. This is a mulch plot. This is a null treatment. This is Michelle, um, my research assistant, and it's, it's, it's pretty strong evidence. I think all of our data show it that uh, mulch and compost really have strong impacts on soil, improving soil quality, and it was reflected in tree growth. And I just reiterate what uh, Francesco said. I think there's, there's some treatment combination in there where you can kind of mimic a four soil horizon, um, building the, the, a, the O horizon using a compost, putting more coarse material on top of that. I think that's ultimately going to be your best strategy. 
Uh, thank you all for your attention. Again, thank you um, to the tree fund, some of the cooperators on the project. J. Frank Schmidt uh, donated all the trees. The scientists at Davy and Bartlett who uh, have uh, been helpful with a lot of discussions. Um, the products donated by Plant Healthcare and the tea brewer by Greater Earth Organics. Um, again, the presentation is available on, on the website, and you can send me an email or talk to me. I'll be around for a couple more days. And reminder again about this tree growth conference. Uh, so if you can make it, we'd like to see you out there. Uh, thank you very much, and I guess I'll take some questions. This concludes Dr. Brian Scherenbrock's talk on compaction and remediation of urban dirt. If you would like to learn more about soils, you can find additional information at the ISA web store, including the Online Learning Center Soil and Water course and CD. If you have recommendations for topics to cover in future podcasts in this series, please contact the ISA at elearning at isa-arbor. Com. Thank you for listening to this episode, which was brought to you by the Bartlett Tree Expert Company, caring for America's trees since 1907. This is Tom Smiley at the Bartlett Tree Research Laboratory, reminding you to subscribe to this podcast series and join us next time for another episode of Science of Arboriculture. Trees in every country, trees, you know we can. Work together and learn what we need to meet the challenge. Traditional skills and modern techniques. Whatever language you speak, you have a world to offer everyone.